The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Table Talk, the Spectator's food and drink podcast. I'm Lara Prendergast. And I'm Olivia Potts. And today we're delighted to be joined by Professor Charles Spence. Professor Spence is an experimental psychologist and gastrophysicist at the University of Oxford. He is the head of the Cross-Modal Research Group, which specialises in the research about the integration of information across different sensory modalities. Professor Charles Spence, welcome to Table Talk. Thank you. Professor Spence, we're going to start where we always do at the beginning and ask you, what are your earliest memories of food? So, uh, my first memories, probably about my fourth birthday party, I think. I ran out of that outdoor swimming pool with a bunch of, I guess, our friends and a very big bowl of Smarties. And the game was whoever could get the biggest number of Smarties in their hands got to eat the lot. And it was uh, Mr. Benson. Who beat me? I had the second biggest hands uh, <laughs> of all my colleagues, um, so I never got to eat them. That was about food, even if I never got to actually eat <laughs> the benefit. And it was my birthday too, so. And, and what were meal times like when you were growing up? Both fraught on the one hand, I suppose, uh, but also uh, fun on the other. Fraught in the sense that uh, I had a sort of traditional family with my elder brother and sister who would always. Um, We'd all be forced by our parents to eat all the uh, vegetables on our plates before we could have dessert, before we could leave the table. Uh, my brother was 65 and a chef now, still traumatised by being forced to eat the Brussels sprouts and the broccoli. It's very bitter foods. Turns out, when I, when I gave my family all this sort of tasting strip to see whether we live in the same taste worlds or not, it turns out my father is a non-tasty, just can't taste the bitterness in cruciferous vegetables and Brussels sprouts. Whereas my brother, my, my, my sister, myself and my nieces or taste it as much more bitter. So this long-running sort of family feud has had consequences for my brother and his cooking 50 years later can all be put down to the different tongues and taste worlds we kind of live in. Oftentimes it would be my siblings who'd cook for me because my parents were out working. And so I always remember uh, having fun sort of being a little dictator at the dining table about four o'clock for my afternoon tea uh, and getting my sister to make me what I used to call it. A dog shit burger, I think it was which was like a, a, a burger grilled, then with, with some, uh, a pot, slice of pineapple, a lashings of peanut butter and under the grill, and then just, when you finished it off perfectly, it just looks like you know what. <laughs> which is probably a bit, an early study of the impact of naming <laughs> on, on, on food perception. <laughs> and what about school food? Are those happy memories or more dismal? It's hard to bring much back uh, to mind, which probably tells you all you need to know. I guess we always used to be able to take our own lunch box in. And for that, I remember in, in 1W, which was probably at seven or eight, we had the old-fashioned wooden desk with the inkwell and sort of the, um, you pull up the lid and have your books inside. And in there, I used to have my Tupperware, probably my first food experiment. And I used to you know, put various things and invite my colleagues in the class, 1W, Mr. Westlands, to donate some of their lunch to my little experiment and see what we could grow with the aim of trying to get the most disgusting smelling concoction or coca-cola was very good for you know creating fungus and other stuff until at one point uh yes mr westmoreland had decided there was a horrible smell 
we needed a desk inspection and uh, I was forced to take my little experiment to the furthest ends of the schoolyard to be disposed of and never smelt from again. <laughs> when did you sort of start to develop this interest in food and the kind of sensory experience of food and, and the way that interacts with our other senses? Quite late, I suppose, as it happens. Probably the last 20 years now, I've been really, uh, most of the research for myself and my lab has been focused on the world of food. In part because it's just such a multi-sensory thing and engages all of our senses, you know, from what it looks like to what it sounds like, its smell, taste, texture, the pain of chili and so on. So it is one of the most multi-sensory things we experience on a regular basis. And yet it's not one that psychologists typically study. So I've always been interested in the senses and the application of kind of emerging insights about how the senses are connected and how they affect our perception and well-being. But initially that was only looking at hearing and vision and touch the kind of higher, the rational senses, the senses you can stimulate by technology, preferably by a computer, so it's very easy to do your experiments. Whereas when it came to food, virtually none of the psychologists looked at it because you couldn't deliver the stimuli by a computer. You've got to make things, wash them up. People get full up, and so it's just much more difficult to do, and there's kind of a whole other branch of maybe food science that was sort of directed at food. So it just bizarrely now, in hindsight, was not a, a topic of interest on the map, even psychology, until um, when I started teaching in Oxford in 97, and from the very start was sort of funded by Unilever just to do whatever for the first few years. In about 2000, they said, will we come over and do an experiment on smell? We've got a problem with our fruit teas. They look great, very colorful. They smell fabulous, but when people taste them, they're just kind of disappointed. There's no real flavor. And at that point, I wasn't really interested in food, but they were paying the bills. So, of course, we went along. And then it sort of turned out, in fact, there was so much interesting going on in the world of smell, flavor senses. For example, you know, our sense of smell is the oldest of our senses. And it's the only sense that doesn't cross over in our heads. Our right arm goes to our left side of the brain, our left hand to the right side of the brain. All the senses cross over apart from smell, whereas your left nostril goes straight back. And so that becomes kind of interesting. It has a different route. And hence, it's differently sensitive to various factors. And, um, you know, I discovered there was this sort of theoretically interesting question in there about smell and then about taste. And then the more I thought about it, the clearer it became that food is, you know, one of the most multi-sensory things and that we sort of engage with it, all of us, regularly. And everyone sort of got an opinion about it. And there was just this sort of big area of psychology that no one was studying, but where you could take your insights from the other senses that were easier to study, apply them to food. So off we went, uh, starting to do lots and lots of uh, food experiments, first with coloured drinks, seeing if we told people the colours of these drinks in front of you were all misleading, they're all random, just ignore what you see. Could people tell us what the real taste or flavour was? Was it blackberry or orange or lime? I wish they could not, even when they knew they were being fooled. Through then, to probably their most famous food experiment, um, the Sonic Chip, for which we won the Nobel Prize for, big Nobel Prize, I should say, for nutrition back in 2004, 2008 and won the prize, but research in 2004 where um, we had people biting into hungry students by and large biting into chewed tubes of uh, Pringles perfect for experiments because they're all the same size and shape and each time one of our participants bit into one of these uh, potato chip like things we changed the sound making it louder or quieter boosting just certain frequencies and we're able to show that even though there's no nutrition in the sound of the crunch or the crispy or crackliness of your food nevertheless people really like noisy foods if you get the sound right, you can enhance the um, Christmas freshness and liking fried and baked goods by about 15% simply by enhancing the sound. 
and life's never been the same. I've been studying chips, crisps, as we call them, and crisp packets uh, probably more than anyone else in the world. <laughs> <laughs> you say prior to being approached about the herbal teas, you had no academic or, or, or psychological interest in food. Were you interested in it from a sort of personal point of view? Were you cooking? Were you experimental in your own kitchen? So always cooking and baking a lot. Ever since being like a small child, we always had to do two hours of housework for free or maybe for 5p every weekend. I was either, you know, digging a pit in the garden or baking butterfly buns. So <laughs> there's no competition which of those would be more fun. So from then, I've uh, been cooking and, and ever since I used to cook in my parents' fish and chip shop and then we had a bed and breakfast hotel. So I've been making 36 breakfasts in the morning. And then when it came to university, a lot of cooking myself. So interested in it, but never really with a sort of a psychologist's or a gastrophysicist's hat on. It was just something you did. It was something that was you know, helpful for uh, dating purposes, shall we say, seduction and uh, yeah, an enjoyable pastime, I think, to discover new flavors. But yeah, bizarrely, it might seem now, never really thought, given that in the daytime, I was thinking about well, how does what we see affect what we hear? How does what we hear affect what we feel? Why did I never think about applying that to the food I was eating? And Professor Spence, how has your research affected your own tastes and food preferences? Are there certain foods that you particularly like or dislike, knowing as much as you do about how all of these different sensory things feed into the way we appreciate food? So I'm not so sure necessarily my likes have changed as a result of the research. Certainly um, it became very clear when I ever, after a few years working with food companies such as Unilever and others, uh, then I got introduced to the chefs and people like uh, Heston Blumenthal from the Fat Duck. And all of a sudden, uh, I started being invited to chefs' conferences around the world. And I very soon realized that you got to eat much better food <laughs> working with chefs and going to chefs' conferences than you ever did going to psychology conferences talking about your eyes and your ears. And so that was it. kind of kept me going on the, down the same track. So that changed what I ate. Currently, I'm getting very interested in sort of herbs and spices and the you know, questions of how to reduce salt, sugar, and fat and food. And there, that's giving me, a, um, I guess, an extra interest in these sort of ingredients that deliver stimulation, like chili, like black pepper, that which don't seem to have any negative health consequences. People sometimes seem to think, well, you know, chilies, yeah, it's not good. It's, sort of, it's such a fiery, powerful ingredient. It can't be good for you. And yet I can reel off the research saying, no, you'll probably live longer. The more chilies you eat, it'll kill all the bad stuff in you and so on and so forth. Uh, and sort of fascinated by these other the things that taste good to us, but which don't have a negative consequence because everyone loves salt, because everyone loves sugar, but it's hard to consume too much of those without the consequences being uh, told. You know, at home, Mrs. Spence, although she doesn't cook much herself, isn't necessarily uh, one for being experimented on every night of the week when I make dinner. But she does allow us to have you know, maybe a once a month like a lab dinner party. And for a while, we have had a couple of chefs in residence. Some of the chefs from the Fat Duck restaurant would come. And that would be a really nice chance to experiment and put the science to the test. And you know, I remember dinners where we'd have uh, one uh, Franco-Colombian chef, Charles Michel, and he'd be making futurist potato sculptures. And then we had a a tone generator and 10 different kinds of beer trying to find the pitch of harmony. And this was sort of experimental and fun. And, and in this kind of environment where you can be a bit more playful about what you're eating and stuff, that was where we started doing things like um, the Kandinsky salad, which was a salad plated to look like one of Kandinsky's paintings, served off a painting canvas eaten with a paintbrush. 
the sort of thing you'd probably never do in a sort of serious scientific lab straight away. But in this more playful environment, you can experiment, see, did the food taste better when it looks like a painting? Yes, it did. Did it taste better with a paintbrush? Well, as long as it was clean, probably yes, because your lips are quite sensitive. We're also playing there with you, uh, putting um, the pelts of hairs around uh, the silver service cutlery and then serving the hair itself. So this was very tactile cutlery. You could sort of smell the animal and sort of connect you much more to the animal you're eating. And those sorts of playful experiments we, that we had at home and there's once monthly parties then some of them made their way into formal experiments in the lab and in occasionally to, to you know to dishes or to cutlery that you see in some of the world's top restaurants and tell us about working with Heston Blumenthal he was probably the first person to bring multi-sensory fine dining to the UK what was your working relationship how did it come about so it's probably about 2003 or two and we were both working with a flavor house called Thurmanish over in Switzerland. And uh, I was sort of consulting for them around the world of smell and taste and flavor and how you could deliver you know, richer, more intense flavors with less of the ingredients if you knew how the brain worked. I think they were helping uh, Heston to make some technically very challenging dishes or ingredients, like um, some sort of you know, olive oil, butter or jelly, I think was the one. And uh, Tony Blake, who was the, our contact in Thurmanish, he said, well, you two should meet. And uh, yeah, kind of got my invitation down to the Fat Duck. And um, then every uh, few months or so, I might get another invitation down or Heston would come up to the lab in Oxford to see what was going on. And um, sort of great, a very sort of uh, fruitful time that uh, he came up and we stuck him in our soundproof booth. We gave him the sonic chip experiment. And he sort of came out thinking, wow, sounds, you know, the forgotten flavor sense sound is something that chefs can use, an ingredient. But that was not something he'd come across before. And then that led into the sort of the, the famous sound of the sea seafood dish that's been the signature dish on the on the restaurant menu for a decade or more now. Uh, on the other hand, I had to go down and, and, and sort of, you know, give talks to the um, the chefs and the wait staff. And between meal times, as they were ironing the tablecloths, I'd be projecting on the wall in the fat duck. And sometimes there I would find that the chefs had come across things or discovered stuff that wasn't there in the scientific literature. Uh, and we could take insights from the kitchen back to the lab. So, for example, I mentioned that we were working with these sort of fruit teas that you know, smelled great, looked great, but tasted disappointing. In the restaurant at that time, they were serving a purple-coloured sort of jelly at two points in the meal. At one stage at the beginning, it was kind of a, a beetroot and orange jelly with a square of orange stuff, a square of purple stuff, but it's actually miscoloured, actually correctly coloured, but miscolored compared to what people think because the it's a blood red orange and a golden beetroot so the colors have been naturally reversed but um maybe diners don't realize to begin with so there's this purple thing at the beginning that was meant to be a beetroot and at the end of the meal is like another purple cube that was a uh, blackcurrant pastel so it's the same color that was me meant to mean two different flavors one fruit one vegetable at different points in the meal and they figured out through trial and error in the kitchen that the way to flip the brain into thinking, yes, this purple really is black carrot, say, is to add some fruit acids, malic acid, citric acid. And I took that insight, went back to Oxford, looked in the journals, and none of the scientists, so whenever we make fruity things, we add some powdered flavoring, some powdered sugar, a bit of food coloring, mix it all together, a very sort of artificial synthetic creation. And in none of that previous 80 years of research of food coloring, had anyone thought about fruit acids and what they might do 
So that led into some experiments that then sort of fed back into our industrial type uh, research. And uh, yeah, sort of went on and on for, for years. And, and what was really nice to see was um, both how the insights could flow both ways. And to see, I think Hester was probably one of the first to really uh, look outside kitchens, cookery books, culinary schools for insights and inspiration and to take that from wherever it might come. And so he would visit ours and various other labs around the country and see what's new, what's interesting. And then they're, they're real genius, I think, to sort of take those scientific insights and to turn them into something delicious and memorable and talked about and Instagrammed. And that, for me, was a real eye-opener because I'd spent 10 or 15 years working on designing better warning signals for car drivers. And even if we got the perfect result, the dream result, that this is the best warning signal for a car driver based on psychology and neuroscience, even then it might take 10 or 15 years before that insight would make it to a high street car. Uh, by contrast, uh, working with the chefs, if they found something of interest, it could be on the menu next week, next month. These have real diners paying real money for, for, for the science. Innovations seem to happen much faster. And what was different between uh, chefs like Heston, uh, and nowadays I work a lot with Joseph Youssef at Kitchen Theory in London, is that they're able to take the science and turn it into something delicious, whereas all too often working with chefs in some of the food companies, they could take the science and they'd make something with it. And you could see there was science in their food creations. It just wasn't delicious. You end up exploding or dribbling down your chin or it just wasn't delicious. And hence, that's why it's been so great to, to be able to work with chefs like Heston over the years. And Professor Spence, where do you take your inspiration from? I mean, it sounds like a lot of your ideas are very creative. Are there certain writers or novelists that you turn to for inspiration? It sort of comes from all over, really. In a way, I think it's a bit about opportunity, uh, just in terms of who you get to meet, who comes to the lab. And so that might be if there's a typeface designer or a, a potter or whatever kind of discipline might come. Or a chef, suddenly that allows you to do all sorts of different kinds of experiments that you wouldn't have done previously. So it was this young Franco-Colombian chef, uh, Charles Michel, who came, who'd seen you know, a Kandinsky painting in New York, um, and got inspired by that, that led into this collaboration. And the chef, he can cook beautifully, but he can't do statistics. But we have you know, statisticians in the lab who can make beautiful graphs, but don't know how to cook. <laughs> and just put those two people together, and suddenly you get something interesting and innovative that had not been tried before. With a potter, with a Raiko Kaneko, who, who makes a number of the plates for the Hat Duck restaurant and other places. Uh, she works in the Midlands. Uh, working with her, uh, we were able to take the science of the color, the shape, the texture of plates. And she could create these beautiful plates, one for seafood with blue and white ripples, one for sweet desserts with rounded pinkish red kind of lobes, because we know that makes things taste sweeter. And my favorite, she made this beautiful kind of heavy pot for a Thai green curry uh, that's very rough, like sandpapery underneath. Seems like it's unfinished. But that whole idea was that we've got the research to show that if you feel something very rough and sandpapery, it can bring out the pungency of, of ginger. And these things just you know, kind of happen by accident in a way when the opportunity arises. I think it'd be very hard for me to go and find a potter and convince them to make some, some pots or plates based on the science. And so that sort of goes on. And, and inspiration could also come you know, from sort of history archaeology, anthropology, design, anywhere and uh, everywhere, really. And I think, you know, going further back in the past also allows you to take a different lens on how people think about or thought about food and its changing role over the millennia. And, um, you know, one of my fun projects recently, I've just been switching from, I suppose, from 
perception of food at the moment, uh, thinking more about the sort of the history of ingredients uh, and such like, and our changing tastes, and just tracking back in you know, the sort of history of the pineapple, for example. And there you can find these, you know, kind of records going back 500 years of what Westerners thought when they first came across a pineapple. It's mentioned by philosophers and really interesting to get your inspiration then from ancient mariners' logs. What plants did they find when they first arrived in the New World? Did they think these pineapples tasty or horrible? And how did that change as the time went by? To wonder today, you know, is it that the pineapple was once described as the most delicious fruit? I'm not sure anyone would really say that today. It's quite nice, but it's not the most delicious thing I've ever tasted. And is that just that our perception of taste has changed over the centuries or has the pineapple itself changed since so it's going to be some culture and history and, and uh, for that I spent more and more of my time reading further and further into the past. You've also worked on some very tech-centred projects with Toyota and with the European Space Station. Looking to the, the future, are there any technological advances that are being made in terms of enhancing our experience of foods that you're excited about? Uh, yes, I'm very interested in sort of that, that interface of, of technology and taste. There's a lot of talk about things like as well, you know, robot chefs and 3D food printing, which is sort of technology and food. But I'm not convinced those really have much mileage. You know, if, even if they can convince us to put a, a 3D food printer in our in our kitchens anytime soon, it'll end up the same place that the, the bread maker did a few decades ago, being you know, put to the back of some cupboard before too long. I suppose to me, I think it's more about the sort of the I don't think we are ready to buy technologies, consumers, that for the dining table. And hence, it's got to be the technology that's already there, that's ubiquitous, that we could kind of reposition to modify our food experiences. Hence, we're interested in sort of smartphones and mobile phones for those who have them. But what could they do to enhance the taste experience? What would it be like to eat on a tablet? Because many people have tablet computers. That could be a plate. Uh, why would you want to do that? And what, the, what benefits might accrue? In the latter case, some of those tablets, you know, are waterproof, so you could effectively eat off your tablet screen and then put it in the dishwasher afterwards. It would allow you to perfectly contrast the color of the food with the color of the screen, rather than having to have a, a rainbow array of plate colors, say. We know that makes a difference. And in the case of mobile phones, smartphones, they've been doing a lot of work on, on sort of solid seasoning using this ubiquitous technology to help change the taste of food building from what was initially the, the sound of the sea dish at the Fat Duck restaurant when diners have some sashimi, seafood, seaweed, and what looks like the seashore, but also the waiter will bring a conch shell and some earbuds. You put those earbuds in, so some technology at the world's top restaurant table. Uh, and when you put those earbuds in, you hear the sounds of the sea. We've done the research with Eston to show that this makes seafood taste better, but no more salty. But that's you know technology being brought to you for a once-in-a-lifetime experience. And so what we've been trying to do since then is figure out how to bring that technology that you have in your pocket to the table. And it happened first in 2012 with um, at the House of Wolf restaurant in London, in Islington, where together with culinary artists, the sound design agency and the Fat Duck, uh, served a bittersweet chocolate lolly for dessert. And on the menu, it said, you know, if you want to make your dessert sweeter, take out your phone, dial 0845-680-24 something. If you want to make your dessert more bitter take out your technology and dial a different number and we were able to add you know five or ten percent sweetness to your dessert simply by using your technology and a bit of this sonic seasoning and so that's really sort of exciting as that area has, has exploded over the last decade to think how can we optimize what you're listening to to season your food to make it sweeter spicier saltier 
or can we use sonic seasoning and ubiquitous technology to help people to eat a little bit less but still feel as full and then from there we also have a line thinking about how we're currently doing projects on enhancing the visual presentation of foods given how many food images there are on instagram and tiktok and elsewhere given the growing interest in gastro porn and food porn we're looking at ai generated images of food how do consumers respond if you tell them this food you're looking at it might look delicious but it's actually created by ai not by a chef or if we tell you it's created by a you know, 3d food printer or if we say there was some sort of artificial intelligence in creating the recipe but not the execution or maybe there's a robot in the kitchen perfectly plating this dish how do these different kinds of ways that technology may come to interact with the food somewhere before you ate it or as you eat it how do they um, affect consumers now and how might we nudge people to think differently moving forward be it with you know, the robots uh, I think it's not much use for robots in the kitchen nor in the home yet but maybe for these sort of vertical farms I've been to some places in California where you know the plants the leafy greens and the salad greens may never see a human from seed to bag so they won't see the sunlight either all done in these kind of sort of factories with robots that will uh, sprinkle stuff out with conveyor belts with automated regimes of lighting then these uh, uh, leafy greens will be cut by uh, robots and then bagged by robots and that's so different from traditional ways of you know farming it has benefits but i think as we move forward the real question will maybe there, you know, there are costs and benefits of these new technologies around the foods that we eat what sort of arguments will help to convince consumers moving forward that some of these new technological means of food production are things they want to try and potentially pay more for? And Professor Spence, one area of your research is around fruit and vegetable consumption. I mean, do you think we're quite confused nowadays about how much fruit and veg we need to be eating? And I mean, what's your attitude to how much we need to be eating? Uh, yes, indeed. Um, I'm at a there's a great interest in fruits and vegetables and from a recent report from Juice Plus just came out and sort of assessed the current state of the landscape in terms of consumers both in the UK and abroad about their current fruit and veg consumption interviewing about 5,000 people in the UK and 32,000 worldwide and what that clearly showed uh, perhaps no surprise to anyone is that um, only one in four Brits are currently eating their recommended five a day that many consumers, about half in the UK, aren't really quite sure what a portion is. Is that a can? Is it a handful? Does it depend on the fruit and veg? And sort of a, an increasing shift towards sort of canned fruits and veg, which is sort of interesting from a psychological perspective that you know, maybe we thought about you know, canned fruits and veg, they were something of the 50s, maybe it was sort of technologically advanced, and then we kind of felt like we got beyond canned fruit and veg. We went back to that's it can't be as good for you, and yet we are... Kind of cycling in, in some sense to more consumers getting their vitamins and nutrients from not necessarily from the fresh produce from from increasing use of supplements from increasing use of canned foods this is sort of worrying given all of the recommendations about we should be eating five or maybe even ten portions a day if we're not doing that what are the negative consequences for us and again what are the causes for this if we can identify that it is confusion about what a portion is how do we address that and make that kind of clearer to people? If it is about you know cost of living crisis, 
if it is about availability, then how can we uh, sort of tackle those um, issues? And also, you know, think about the potentially positive destigmatize, I suppose, tin fruit and veg, or or de uh, destigmatize, you know, sort of fruit supplements, or even uh, I'm interested in sort of gummies at the moment, which are coming in quite a lot as a, a new sort of food format. That yeah, I used to think gummies were just for chewy little sweets, were just for kids. But now so many of the nutrients and supplements and uh, sleep aids and so on are all coming into a gummy format. So there's something really interesting going on there about the vehicle or the texture and its appeal, its inherent appeal to consumers. And tell us what comfort food is for you. So it might be a slightly peculiar one. It's an a incredibly spicy pasta rabbiata. Is that made from your own chilies? Uh, it is while I'm here in Colombia. Yes, yes, indeed. I've got some particularly choice ones I'm very proud of. <laughs> Don't know what the Scoville count in terms of how fiery <laughs> they are, but yes, they are uh, painfully hot. And that is, yeah, uh, I suppose the pasta part of it, you might say, is that fits in with traditional comfort foods that for males, it tends to be sort of energy dense, macaroni and cheese if you're over in the States, apparently. So that fits in there. And in a way for me, it, it probably has a resonance that, as I said, when I was a, a young teenager, my, my sister and brother would often cook. I went on Sunday lunches. It used to be my brother cooking kind of a bacon spaghetti, which is kind of an early version of, of, of this pasta arrabbiata. We really haven't come across chilies then. I'm not sure we used garlic even at that point, and, and Parmesan cheese was just something powdered you bought in a, that had been on the shelf for years and no one knew what to do with. So it sort of takes me back, in a sense, to that. We might think of as happier time. And then just something about chili. I don't know what it is, but it is a comfort food, a thing I always crave when I come back from somewhere else. And it sort of has a consistency to it, familiarity as well. We, in the stage, ask our guests whether they've got a sweet tooth. And I imagine this is a question that you might have thought in quite a lot of depth about. Do, do you consider yourself to have a sweet tooth? Absolutely not. <laughs> I mean, I suppose in a way, it is, these days it's a bit hard to see lots of the foods that we used to like uh, without thinking, are they good for us or not? So I used to love, you know, fish and chips four times a week. And nowadays you can't look at fish and chips and then think, without thinking, what is it doing to my body? And the same thing perhaps with sweetness and sugar and salt. For sugar, it feels more than just knowing we shouldn't be consuming too much of it. It really is just to have to have an appeal. I don't understand um, what is it about ice cream. I just don't get it. It doesn't do anything for me. Much rather the dark chocolate than the milk. So I'm more on the savory and, and the spicy uh, end of the continuum. Instead, probably it might turn out uh, when you look, when you segment populations, there are we're not all the same in terms of our liking for sweetness, just as, as we're not all the same in terms of our liking for bitter. Brussels sprouts are the cruciferous vegetables, and for sweetness, it turns out maybe there are about a third of the population who are sweet likers. Who the sweeter it is, the more they love it. A third who are sort of sweet neutral, they like it a bit more as things get sweeter, and then they just plateau. And there are sweet dislikers, and I must fall into that category, who really you know, dislike things the, the sweeter they are. Perhaps it's just, it's so, is it unchallenging in a way? And maybe part of the thing about the spiciness is, is something about challenging yourself through food. How hot can you take it? <laughs> then then uh, something that's, uh, yeah, sweet is just, I don't know why. Why would you? And first of all, we normally end by asking our guests what their desert island meal is, by which we mean your ultimate meal, not something you have to find yourself on a desert island. <laughs> Death row meal always sounds a little bit morbid. So, we go with Desert Island. Yeah. I've got a folder of stuff just collecting uh, death row final meals. I'm sure there's an interesting story to be told in there and what people gravitate towards when it's their last thing. 
I think my choices would probably be quite different for for the Death Row versus the Desert Island. For for Death Row, I think I'd have the Japanese fugu, the fish that might kill you unless the chefs prepared it very well. So that would sort of take your demise a little bit into your own hands. And who would care if the chef wasn't very good if you ate the liver of the fugu fish and you died slightly before somebody else did it to you. For the desert island, I think, yeah, somebody on that, that, that pungent chilli end of the spectrum. How would you serve that chilli? <laughs> well, I think you know, it has a, a, an ability to make anything else taste better. Probably it might depend on what colour it has as well. Um, an assumption that redder chilies are spicier or firier. Is that really true? Or is that just your eyes are, are tricking your mind? And so I think I would, you know, whether I'd spend my time just eating it or probably trying to cultivate my chilies and seeing how I could, how, how differences in shape and size and colour, how do they equate into differences in taste profile? Fugu fish and chilli sounds like a very intriguing final meal. <laughs> <laughs> First time we've had that answer. Yeah, what do you we haven't had that before. <laughs> well, Professor Charles Spence, thank you very much for joining us on Table Talk today. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on the Spectators Food and Drink podcast. For more recipes, food history, stories, and drinks, you can head to the Spectator website. La pauvre fleur disait au papillon céleste.